Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. What a market it's been so far in 2020 with obviously that huge sell-off when the pandemic hit, but then a arguably equally uh, impressive rebound off of the bottom, leaving a lot of investors to say, okay, now what as we look forward? We certainly have somebody here who can help us uh, answer that question. We have Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes, uh, with $68 billion in equity under management, about $600 billion firm-wide across all assets joining us on the phone. Phil, thanks so much for joining us here Again, on the back of the another challenging and, and uh, disappointing jobs number today, you know, the bears out there as it relates to the economic recovery have some more ammunition. What do you think uh, the equity markets are looking at at this moment? Well, the, the equity markets are actually rallying uh, a little bit in the last 15 minutes. And let me let me put your your just your last comment there in some context. So today's data was a bit of a mixed bag. The Philly Fed index was a bit of a disappointment. You looked at the claims on the surface. The initial claims were higher than we expected, but that was a seasonally adjusted number. If you looked at the raw, unseasonably adjusted number, that number was down around 900K, which, which was what we were looking for. The continuing claims have continued to come down. That's good news. And, and just at 10 o'clock, we got a blowout number out of the LEI, the Leading Economic Index, the June reading was revised up from a 2% gain to a 3% gain, and July came in stronger than expected at 1.4%. So the bears will certainly look at the fact that the initial weekly claims number was, was not where we wanted it to be, but there are some other issues around that, that on balance, today's data dump wasn't that bad, and the market is rallying in the last 10, uh, 15 minutes or so after we got this LEI number. So, Phil, what do you do on a day like today? Do you try and do some some day trades, or do you stick with the plan to buy and hold? No, you just you you you'd get uh, you drive yourself crazy if you were trying to day trade this market. Just focus upon the 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 bigger trends, and I think Paul laid this out beautifully at the very beginning. We had the sharpest decline from a record high to a bear market in history, down 35% from mid-February to mid-March. And then over the last five months, the market's up 55%. We've had the most powerful 
rebound from a bear market to an all-time record high in history. Um, we still think that our, our target for the S&P this year was 3,500. We're a little bit under the 3,400 level right now. I think the market's going to continue to grind up over the course of the next couple of months. Look, the, the easy money's been made. We're not going to be up another 55% in between now and the end of the year. But I think the bias is higher uh, based upon the fact that the trough of the cycle was, you know, back in March and April, and the numbers are getting, you know, better over time. All right. So, Phil, if there's numbers getting better, uh, the economy is slowly uh, coming out of uh, that funk we had, that uh, sharp contraction we had when the pandemic initially hit. What are some of the sectors that investors perhaps should be looking at here? You know, let's, let's assume they don't own the big six or seven tech names. So one of the things that, that we did as a firm at Federated Hermes, uh, I guess about two weeks ago, was uh, uh, we're still 2% overweight stocks overall in our balanced allocation model. But we took a percentage point out of domestic large cap growth and added it to domestic large cap value. Value has underperformed growth by 21 percentage points since the bottom of the cycle on March 23rd. We think that gap is going to close over the course of the next, say, 12 to 18 months. So, so we still like technology, but just not the fangs. There are a lot of other technology stocks that are still doing well. We still like healthcare, but we think that financial services and industrials and consumer discretionary uh, are going to get some love here as, as the market begins to look at what doesn't have a name like Apple and Amazon and Microsoft and Netflix and Google and and maybe uh, hasn't had its valuation completely exploited. So give me a good reason as to why it should, because, Phil, it feels like, well, I mean, the value investors at the very least that I've been speaking to over the last six months to a year to more have been waiting for that that moment, but it hasn't come yet. Well, and I think that moment is now, because the reality is that, that the the, the five or six FANG stocks, uh, which now account for something like 25% of the market cap of the S&P, have had a phenomenal move. Those stocks have all doubled. Um, you know, we have not seen anywhere near that kind of a rebound in these other sectors that we talked about. Yet, from an underlying fundamental standpoint, we've got V-bottom recoveries in the housing market and in the auto market. We've got powerful uh, recoveries we're seeing with a lot of the financial service companies, a lot of the consumer discretionary companies, but that's not fully reflected in their share prices. So investors are going to be sifting through the rubble here and saying, okay, so maybe the worst of the coronavirus is behind us, uh, and and where there's still some attractive valuations left. And I and I think we've got to conclude that the Fang stocks have done really well, but those five or six stocks are not the entire stock market. There are other companies that deserve to get back to normal valuation levels over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. Phil, it's always a pleasure speaking to you and don't go completely crazy watching this market today. Phil Orlando, Federated Hermes Investors. I hear him though, Paul, it's a difficult market to trade. You know, I mean, you just you, you watch the same type of trade happen day after day after day. And yet there's so much uncertainty out there. 
Well, 10 a.m. Eastern, we got the leading index of economic indicators, and it was better than anticipated in July, coming in at positive 1.4%. June's reading was revised up to 3% from 2%, so all told, not too shabby. Let's bring in somebody from the conference board. Adam Anazildrim is Senior Director of Economics and Global Research at the conference board, and he can tell us a little bit more about the subcomponents. Adam, thanks for joining. Was there anything in the leading index that set off alarm bells for you? Hi, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on the program. Um, well, you know, when you look at the uh, leading index, uh, it is encouraging news that, you know, we've got a, a third consecutive month of increase. Uh, but that increase is coming in at a slower pace uh, than the sharp increases that we saw in the previous two months. So that might suggest that the, uh, the recovery is going to be losing steam going forward. So we haven't seen sort of the, the same momentum continuing in the leading indicators. All right. So, Ottoman, we also ha- today uh, had some jobless numbers come in, uh, you know, still uh, north of a million jobless claims here. Talk to us about kind of your view of the labor market here. Yeah, so the the labor markets are, are obviously the the part of the economy uh, that are uh, showing the most pickup in uh, leading indicators, uh, great contributions there. Um, but there's uh, still uh, you know a lot of fragility in, in those uh, labor markets, uh, really depending on uh, the measures to contain the pandemic. Um, you know, when you look at uh, we've done some analysis across all fifty states. Uh, And, you know, uh, the infection rates in in about 15 of those states um, are in the green zone. Uh, They've come down, uh, but the rest of them are still uh, showing a spreading virus. And those amount to about 75 percent of economic output produced by those states when you put them all together. Um, So that does pose a a major risk for uh, having to have more furloughs and layoffs and a fragile state for the labor markets. Yeah, and of course, we already saw the initial jobless claims tick up last week. So there are 10 components to the leading economic index, including mm-hmm. things like average weekly hours for manufacturing, you know, manufacturers' new orders, and then other things like the leading credit index. Give us a clue as to where you're spotting the most fragilities in these subcomponents. Right. In the latest months, um, the sort of negative contributions uh, are coming from, um, you know, some of those uh, indicators of financial conditions um, and also from new orders in manufacturing. Um, but maybe most importantly is consumers' outlook uh, for business conditions. Uh, and consumers are really affected by what's going on in the labor market, uh, high unemployment rates, and that keeps their confidence level low. And, uh, and that's why, you know, at the conference board, we're thinking that uh, the, the final months of the year is going to see a recovery that's losing steam. And uh, maybe even uh, we might see uh, negative uh, uh, GDP growth rates continuing. All right. So, so Ottoman, I guess the question for a lot of people is, are we still in a recession or are we in the early stages of a recovery and how fragile is that recovery, I guess? 
Yeah, well, as you know, the recession uh, started in, in February. Um, and uh, when you look at the coincident indicators, which are uh, kind of the indicative of whether we're in recession or not, we, we see the same type of uh, rebound in those. Um, but uh, they're still showing an economy that's in a deep hole. There's a, still a long way to climb out of that. Um, and uh, I think it, it remains to be seen, you know, when we come out of that rece- uh, recession back into, you know, fully positive, positive uh, growth rates. How much of the answers to all of those questions, Ottoman, depend on stimulus, further stimulus? Um, well, uh, we are seeing sort of the, uh, the uh, earlier rounds of stimulus uh, waning and uh, looking ahead, uh, you know, unless uh, more stimulus comes to households to uh, keep their uh, spending sustained, um, I think it'll figure in into uh, the risk about this outlook going forward. And uh, I would say uh, uh, quite a bit uh, depends on the stimulus as well as how uh, how the pandemic uh, kind of fares going forward into the next few months. Ottoman, just uh, quickly, about 30 seconds. What is the conference board's GDP call here for 2020 and 2021? Yeah, so for uh, on an annual basis for 2020, um, we're estimating about almost a, a 5% decline in the economy over 2019. Um, and uh, going into 2021, um, the economy can recover back into about its long-term growth, which uh, we estimate to be about, uh, about 2%, so slightly below the, that long-term potential growth. Um, and uh, again, you know, a lot of that really depends on you know, how the pandemic uh, continues, whether we get uh, a resurgence, a sustained resurgence that uh, leads to a lockdown or not. Ottoman, thanks so much. Uh, as always, we always appreciate you uh, giving us your opinions and uh, sharing the data from the conference board. Ottoman Ozeldrum, Director of Economic Research and Global Research Chair uh, for the conference board, uh, joining us on the phone. Better than expected numbers for July, Vani, but uh, some caution for the remainder of 2020. Yeah, you're hearing it from all the economists out there. We came off such low levels that even, you know, beating these estimates really doesn't mean all that much. And if you look at pre-pandemic numbers or year-over-year numbers, it's really almost, you know, almost embarrassing. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. So, again, it, is that create... Uh, more uh, pressure for fiscal stimulus out of Washington. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. One of the most read stories on the Bloomberg Terminal today uh, is about New York City landlords aggressively calling tenants in the finance industry and other industries saying, hey, Get your people back to work. It's a fascinating story. It's a Bloomberg exclusive, and we have one of the reporters with us. Natalie Wong, uh, U.S. commercial real estate reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us. So, Natalie, just a fascinating story here. Give us kind of the the, the key takeaways that you uh, and Sri Natarajan, your co-author, other reporter on the story, reported. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so we've been making some calls in the past few weeks 
basically to top New York City real estate landlords and to, you know, some of the finance executives and lots of people in the city who are kind of counting on a return to the offices. And what we're hearing is that even though the offices have been open for quite some time now, a lot of them are still quite empty. Um, And basically the argument that a lot of these landlords are making is that it's basically civic duty to have these big companies start to bring back their workers in a more aggressive way because, A, the buildings are safe, but, B, most importantly, or the argument that they're making is that it's a civic duty because if there's no office workers, then a lot of central business district areas in New York City are not going to uh, thrive, and a lot of the small businesses that prop up these areas, like the retailers, the delis, the coffee shops, etc., they're not going to survive, and they're, and they're going to die, and there's going to be nothing to come back to. So, so that's it, the main argument that they're making. So these major landlords and developers are saying, we love our city. They're not saying, pay us rent again. No, not, 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 not for this angle, at least. They're speaking with basically their you know friends, some of their biggest tenants, um, the people that have the ability to bring back hundreds, if not thousands of workers into the city. We're talking about the Golden Sachs, the Blackstones, the Black Rocks. Um, and they're basically making a, a plea to say, listen, if you love New York City and we've all done so well um, thriving from New York City, then it's kind of our responsibility to come back now um, to save New York City. So, Natalie, what has, what's been a sense of the response they're getting? So what I'm hearing is that it's a little bit mixed. Some of the CEOs that we've talked to um, have said that the response has been sort of lukewarm because obviously there's so much uncertainty around the virus, around potential surges and even schools reopening in the city. Um, so obviously no one wants to go out and make a big, bold statement to bring their workers back when there's no certainty of, of exactly how to do that. Um, and on the other side of the coin, we're also hearing that some of the CEOs are agreeing. Uh, we had one of our uh, real estate executives say that from the CEOs he's spoken to, and he's spoken to well over 100 tenants, um, it seems like they're going to be making an aggressive push to bring back far more workers, between 30 to 50% of their workforce following Labor Day. So we'll have yeah. to see if that actually follows through. I mean, I can see how CEOs want things to be normal. Everybody does, but there's also the health aspect and there's also the mental health aspect. If people are more comfortable being out of the office and working from home, then I also can see why CEOs would be okay with that. Ultimately, it's what you prioritize, right, Natalie? And developers Mm -hmm. prioritize the places they develop, clearly. And if they were developing suburban areas, I'm sure they would be making the opposite phone calls to these CEOs and saying, hey, listen, great opportunity here to have, you know, XYZ town in upstate New York thrive. But CEOs of banks and major firms, they probably prioritize their workforce and profits in, you know, different orders. Right. I think it's a tricky time for all these different parties. And, and you're right to say landlords do have a lot riding on this. I mean, over the past few decades, the ones that we've spoken to have invested so much capital into big real estate developments in the city that really rely on the flow of thousands of office workers, tourism, and the ability of New York City to continue to lure talent. So if people don't have to come back to the offices and some of these you know, vibrant retailers, small businesses start to die out, there's a lot less reason for talent to want to come into the city at all. Um, and and that's when that argument sounds valid, but obviously behind all of this is a big pandemic and major health risks um, that kind of underlie the reason for many people wanting to stay at home. Uh, so what we're hearing now is that CEOs are still kind of taking their time. It's in August, slower time of the year to kind of assess 
exactly how and if they should start um, bringing people back. And behind all these conversations, yeah, sorry. No, go go ahead. Yeah, I mean, they're not just talking to to CEOs, too. They're they're really talking to the governor's office. They're talking to a very influential local coalition for top businesses in New York City and also pushing uh, the mayor's office to really ramp up this return to work, back to business, you know, New York is open for business again campaign. Um, so it's kind of all across the board. These landlords are really going out of the way to do that. Now, just real quickly here, uh, what's your sense of the average when people will be coming back? Is it like a, a half by the end of the year, maybe 100% by next year? What's kind of the consensus you're hearing? It's really hard to tell. Initially, we were hearing that more people were really going to come back after Labor Day. That's kind of what we heard from that one uh, CEO that I spoke to. But according to a recent survey of top 146 companies done in New York City, they're estimating that just over half is expected to return by summer of 2021. So it seems like that's continually pushed back. And a lot of people are riding on waiting for a vaccine before making that decision. So it it seems to be, there's a lot more uncertainty in the air. Yeah, Natalie, I mean, that's basically what Max Neeson said as well. He's, you know, following all of the vaccine trials and so on, and he's he's preparing for something sort of, you know, well into next year as well. We shall see, though. There could be some some openings sprouting and um, perhaps some reclosings as well. Natalie Wong, it's a fantastic story and a real insight into how these developers and, and CEOs work and how they think and how they communicate with each other. Do check it out on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. You can do that today with Max Neeson, biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And Max, you've got a fascinating column out there. It's about perhaps a newer, better, more effective, and hopefully faster test for the coronavirus. Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So the column was about uh, an effort developed by researchers at the Yale School of Public Health. Um, it's a saliva test, not, not the first one of these that's been developed. But but the one that's the thing that's unique about this one is that um, instead of requiring a kind of a you know a complex series of steps and um, expensive reagents to, to actually run the test, all it takes is a widely available chemical and, and some heat, um, and it's, it's something that just about any lab can run um, as long as it has the proper equipment. And the researchers are, are basically it's it's not a a test that you have to send to them. It's something that they're licensing out for free that that anyone can run as as long as they get the process right. So, um, you know, easier on patients, easier to run, uh, and hopefully one of the many tools needed to to get to a place where where testing isn't such a weight around the neck of, of the response in the United States. Yeah, it's pretty insane that this far into it, there are states out there that aren't even able to test their healthcare personnel. Max, how reliable will this test be? Um, quite reliable. It, it's still a PCR test, so kind of in, in the more accurate general family. And, um, you know, it, it's probably not quite as accurate uh, as sort of the, the kind of standard test, you know, swab all the way back, you know, halfway through your skull um, with that more complicated process. But it, it's close. And it's it's more than reasonable if you, you know, if you need to do mass testing to to accept a little slightly lower potential accuracy, but still, you know, a good level in order to, to potentially expand the number of tests and, and the ease of, 
of collecting and running them. So, you know, there are always trade-offs, but this, this seems like a good one to me. Max, where are we in terms of getting this test? Is, has it been approved? And if so, is it something that can be, where are we in terms of dis- dis- distributing and making it available? Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it got approved over the weekend. And the next step is basically for, for labs to kind of, you know, get up and start running it to talk to the researchers and, and get their license. Um, the license is more or less just conditional on them having the, the right type of machine and agreeing to charge a low price. The other benefit of this test, very, very cheap. So um, it's something that at least theoretically labs should be able to, to get up and running very quickly because it's so simple. Um, you know, how, how long that will actually take, we'll see. But, but there aren't many barriers in the way of, of it being used, um, you know, quite broadly, uh, quite soon, hopefully. Max, is anybody in the community talking about what would happen if there were to be a change in administration in November? Because, you know, I mean, yes, we would love if this all happened sooner, but technically we're only three months away from that date and, and sort of six months away from January, obviously, when a new administration would take over if there were to be one. Would it change things materially? Uh, I, I think that it's it's quite evident that it would. Um, you know, in, in terms of, of just kind of getting back to what I would describe as a more normal response to the pandemic, which is to say one that is publicly led by public health authorities with um, a little bit less in, injection of, of politics and, and um, you know, strange uh, diversions, you know, affections for particular medicines, um, less than consistent regard for scientific evidence. Um, so, yeah, I, I think a, a lot of things will be different on, on you know, both the kind of communication and, and policy front. Um, you know, one would hope that because obviously what's happening now uh, isn't going especially well. Max, uh, give us an update, if you would, on kind of, you know, where we are in terms of vaccines. I know there's, you know, roughly a dozen entities slash companies, groups out there that are, you know, various stages. Give, just give us a kind of lay of the land right now. Sure. So uh, there are a few efforts that that are sort of the furthest along, uh, those being Pfizer and Moderna's RNA vaccines, which which started um, final stage U.S. trials at the end of July. Um, Unclear exactly when data will come on those, but but that's the best hope for for the first um, kind of readout, something that, that, you know, getting data that could eventually lead to, to an FDA approval. Um, but, you know, the, the, that could happen in the in the autumn, probably on the later side. It just depends on, on how quickly they can enroll and uh, how many, you know, how, how the data accrues. Uh, but but the cautionary note there is, you know, getting that, that positive data readout doesn't translate to vaccine immediately available, um, you know, with cautionary, if, if it works, still have the, the kind of mass manufacturing and, and distribution piece to figure out which is you know, the substantial effort in its own right on top of um, you know, the remaining risk that, that the trial takes a while, the, the vaccine doesn't work. So, um, you know, very promising progress, but, but uh, still a, a good amount of uncertainty and, and wait to come. Luckily, with so many programs, um, others moving towards those large-scale trials, uh, there, there's, you know, even if something fails, there are plenty of backups. Yeah, I mean, how does it impact the trials and also then sort of the, the, the 
potential for success of one of these vaccine candidates that there'll be also the flu vaccine going out soon and you know there'll be more doses than ever being administered this year yeah that that's kind of from a public health perspective really really important um you you want to avoid you know similar symptoms similar uh vulnerable populations potential to create a lot of confusion and extra burden on the system um, I, I don't think that those efforts should, should necessarily interfere with, with trial recruitment. Um, if anything, that, that could be a good way to, you know, people already coming in for a shot to try and, and recruit more directly and, and especially target uh, the populations that, that are a little bit uh, kind of running behind in recruitment. So I'm hopeful that, you know, that that effort succeeds and that it can be parlayed into both, you know, good vaccination infrastructure for an eventual COVID vaccine and, and a way to, to maybe um, get an answer faster on, on multiple vaccines. Max, uh, just going to put you on the spot, but we won't hold you to it. We will never <laughs> play this again. When are you planning for life to return to a quote unquote normal with yourself and your own family? Oh, it's it's likely to be sometime well into next year. Uh, and and my my answer comes from kind of two specific points. One that you know having enough vaccine to to get to some sort of meaningful level of of herd immunity where you'd be confident enough to, to sort of fully get back to normal. That's just going to take a long time because of those manufacturing and distribution steps. And the second is you know the high amount of uncertainty about exactly how effective the vaccine will be. Mm. Um, huge range of potential outcomes there. If, if it's only, you know, quite modestly effective, you know, yes. just clears the FDA bar. Uh, Max, thank you. Max Neeson, Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.